Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Thomas Kidd, author of the new book, Thomas Jefferson, a biography of spirit and flesh. Uh, Thomas, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me. And congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, as you as you say at the beginning, Jefferson needs no introduction on this holiday weekend, uh, but he is also perhaps the most enigmatic and controversial of the founders. That's right. I mean, uh, he's obviously one of the founding fathers who has a memorial in Washington, D.C., and uh, is especially celebrated at uh, July 4th weekend because of the Declaration of Independence. But he seems to be um, among the founders increasingly controversial um, in American culture, especially as we've dealt with issues about uh, race and violence in, in recent years in America. Uh, he has become uh, a target of particular criticism and sometimes even iconoclasm uh, with his statues and so forth. And, uh, and, and so I think it's a good time to revisit uh, Jefferson and to think about what what was really going on in his mind and his time and his culture to bring him to really uh, views that seem so contradictory to us uh, to the value of all men are created equal. And it is interesting. I mean, you you point out at the start that even though there's this vast archive of papers and annotated books and so on, yet there still seems to be something essentially unknowable about him. That's right. I mean, he he uh, left an enormous uh, collection of of published uh, you know pa- papers or you know papers available in scholarly editions today. Um, and in a way, it's almost the vastness of, of that body of, of writings, especially uh, letters and, and speeches and so forth, that, that makes him sort of impenetrable because he, the contradictions, especially of his being a slave owner and being the one who articulated the American ideal of all men are created equal, I think, I think demands answers about how could he do this? How, how could this make sense to him? Um, and it, it, you really have to dig into his moral and ethical and religious writings and beliefs to, to even begin to understand the, the contradiction. I mean, a lot of times we sort of default to the idea that, well, he was just a hypocrite. Um, and, and I think that that's fair to a certain extent, but it doesn't get you very far in understanding historically the context in which he grew up and was educated and how that context might help explain, although not justify, all these manifest contradictions in his in his life and thought. Yeah, I was I was very struck by that, actually, that, you know, a lot of the controversy about uh, Jefferson does surround these questions of character and ethics and and that accusation of hypocrisy. How could a man who'd authored the Declaration of Independence, own hundreds of enslaved people, exactly as you say. But it is very striking that you say that that word hypocrisy doesn't quite fit Jefferson. Right. I mean, it, it, from a modern perspective, I, I think it's it's fair enough to say that he was hypocritical. And and I think that to me, when 
when you have people in a person's historic context who are, are challenging someone like Jefferson to buck to the you know the principles of his articulated uh, beliefs, especially in the Declaration. I mean, he he had people who were saying, "Well, if all men are created equal, then slave owning is not right." Um, and, and so, so that that I think does make historically the the charge of hypocrisy fair. But I think it, from a modern perspective, especially in kind of social media context. People tend to throw around charges like hypocrisy almost as a way to just sort of you know abandon or dismiss people like Jefferson in the past, and I, I don't I don't think that that's probably the most uh, helpful approach. I, th- I think it's it's more helpful historically to um, not to cancel as we talk about today, but to really dig in and try to understand how this might have made sense to the people in the past. And again, it's, it's not a matter of justifying what they were doing, but to understand the culture and time in, in which they lived and to see that someone like Jefferson really was trying to balance what, what I think were ultimately kind of incoherent uh, worldviews or, or different uh, ideologies that as it related to issues like slavery, but there were other contradictions too, that it helped to make his uh, his apparent hypocrisy to be more comprehensible in a historical sense, uh, though ethically not not justified certainly in our view. Yeah, it's 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 really is interesting that because you 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 consistently remind us just as you did there that with historical figures we have to see them in the context of their own time, the choices that they had. Uh, in front of them then. But I, I guess the problem is that that Jefferson is one of those characters who also has some claim on us as a figure who to some degree transcends his time and his place. Right. I mean, I, I think I say that he is, you know, the, the, the one person in American history who I think carries the heaviest burden about issues about race and slavery and contradiction of American ideals and American practice, um, and, and that's you know that's a that's a real burden. I mean, because every every year when we come around to July Fourth, we celebrate the the ideals that Jefferson articulated, but increasingly in in recent decades have uh, sort of winced culturally when we think about the way that he actually lived, um, and it's not just uh, in the sense of being a conventional slaveholder, but we w- most experts now agree that Jefferson seems to have had a longstanding sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, one of his enslaved women. Um, and, and so it's not just that he's a sort of run-of-the-mill slaveholder, but that he, he engages in, in, in kind of the worst extreme practices of some slaveholders uh, of sexual uh, abuse and coercion of, of their uh, female slaves in his case. And, and, uh, and so it, it just seems to get worse and worse uh, the, the more that we know and, and that was revealed about, about Jefferson and Hemings due to uh, the DNA testing in the late 1990s. So I, I think that to the extent that America struggles with the disjunction between ideals and practice that Jefferson is probably the one among the founding fathers who comes in for the most scrutiny and uh, and criticism. 
Yeah, and I, I guess even in the context of his own time, Jefferson's views on slavery, that they are difficult to reconcile with it, with his high-minded political philosophy. We had um, Bruce uh, Ragsdale on the podcast uh, previously, and uh, he reminded us that uh, Jefferson included his enslaved workers as part of the count of his cattle and his livestock. Right. He he said some things from time to time that really are hair raising. I mean, and not not entirely unique in, in his context, but he talked about the value of having breeding women uh, as as slaves that, that they added uh, to a slave owner's capital. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, we functionally know that that's that's the way that slave masters tended to think about their enslaved people and women in particular, but uh, it's, it's shocking to see him say it straight out. Um, and he also said things in notes on the state of Virginia, which was his only uh, full-length book that he ever wrote, uh, that, that were just revolting about a comparison about uh, uh, African-Americans to orangutans and so forth. It, it really is hard to even talk about. It's, it's so uh, hair-raising a kind of racism um, and yet he, he at this, in the same book, Notes on the State of Virginia, talked about the, that the judgment of God was probably coming on America for uh, the sin of slaveholding. It's one of the most sort of traditionally providential things that he ever wrote in, in his whole career. And so from a modern perspective, you just think, how in the world could he hold these kinds of ideas in his mind at the same time of a, a, you know, the, the, the idea that Slavery is fundamentally immoral in both Christian and kind of Enlightenment categories, and and yet uh, he had these these horrible, uh, racist things that he said about African Americans, and and uh, and you know just these cruelly calculating views of the economics of slaveholding. It it really is quite uh, shocking and and extraordinary. Yeah, you say that the distance between what he thought and what he did is greater than perhaps any other leading American. And I I guess that is problematic. And we do think about it, particularly at this time of year, because the Declaration of Independence is the founding credo of the United States. uh, American scripture, one historian uh, calls it. And, you know, I, I, I have even some personal sense of that. I remember seeing in the New York Public Library uh, the Declaration of, of Independence written out in Jefferson's own hand with annotations showing where the changes had been made and so on. And and it was like looking at some kind of holy relic or, or holy document. So, so that paradox between that Jefferson and the Jefferson you've been describing is it almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around? Right. And, and I think, you know, it's hard for us to get away from Jefferson because of the Declaration in particular, uh, although so many of his writings are politically uh, brilliant and, and, uh, and inspiring in their way. And, and, and the Declaration in particular, uh, and, and the lines about all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I mean, that, that belief has been used for great good uh, throughout not only American, but also world history. Uh, that, that concept is, has been behind uh, many revolutionary movements in, in, in world history. Uh, and in America, it was put to great good use by people like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so somehow we we have to be able to figure out how to 
accept the good in Jefferson's legacy while also being rightly critical of the way that the man actually lived. Yeah, we and sometimes I think we even forget that he was a he was president, secretary of state, um, things like the Louisiana Purchase. That uh, essentially, in the last decade or so, his life really has boiled down to the Declaration of Independence and the enslaved people who worked for him. Right. I, I mean, his and founder of the University of Virginia. Uh, he's he, he is, I think, rightly celebrated for his legacy of uh, religious liberty. Uh, in particular, in writing the bill for establishing religious freedom in Virginia, which was uh, before even the First Amendment's uh, uh, guarantees of religious liberty for for um, Americans, um, and, and so I, I think that the challenge that we have in these days in American culture is how to be admiring of of principles of people who who led uh, not just uh, sort of troubling lives ethically, but in Jefferson's case, really appalling uh, behavior. How, how do we uh, negotiate the idea that uh, there there is something still redeemable about his legacy while also being uh, justly critical of, of his, his life? And, you know, I think if someone like Martin Luther King Jr. could do it, then, then we, can, we can still do it today but but it is i think in american culture we tend to go to one extreme or the other of completely abandoning people like jefferson because of his his ethical uh the disaster of of, of his life with slavery and also his his financial life was a, a total mess uh, and that related to his inability to grapple with slavery was he was such a financial disaster that there was no way he could consider uh, freeing his his slaves, but to 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 only focus on that, I think, is to impoverish the the American political tradition, which is substantially informed by the principles articulated in the Declaration of Independence. So somehow we have to be able to uh, you know, take that kind of middle way, which seems so difficult in the social media age, to to know how to take a balanced approach to someone like. Jefferson and, and to allow ourselves just to be ambivalent about him. Yeah, I wonder if uh, one pathway that you seem to suggest in the book to explain, if not excuse, uh, Jefferson is that uh, we often think of him as being a very rational figure, perhaps even a cold figure. Um, with every word, every idea honed and crafted. One thing that I found really striking in the book is that time and again, you show that actually incoherence uh, is a major factor uh, in his thinking. That That's not the usual image that we have of Jefferson. Right. I mean, when when he was writing the Declaration, I think he, he it's, it's a great triumph of coherence in the sense that he he said it later that he was just trying to reflect the harmonizing sentiments of the day in 1776 among the, the patriots. But you also see in his life and his philosophy that there are at least three, four, five major traditions of thought and belief that inform his his life and his ideology and I just don't think he ever gets all of that sorted out in his vast bo body of work in the way that he lived. I mean, the, there's the secular enlightenment, there's traditional Anglican Christianity, 
There's the code of gentility that he he is reared with in in colonial and revolutionary Virginia. And which you say, which you say in the book is the most important element, the gentility you particularly hone in on. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's probably gentility that that uh, it, when push comes to shove, I think he tends to default to the code of gentility and honor that he learned as a boy in colonial Virginia, and that that partly influences his uh, his slave owning habits and his just uncontrollable need to host and impress and spend. And have you know a lavish mansion, and then to build another mansion when Monticello is finished, he built his lesser-known Poplar Forest mansion. I, I, I think it, if there are any ideas that tend to control Jefferson, it is the mandate of how a Virginia gentleman is supposed to live. And you know, in terms of the approach for this biography, trying to penetrate the inner Jefferson seems to be what you're trying to do. This is not a traditional biography. You're looking at his inner life and not just what he thought, but also what he believed. Right. I mean, there there are a number of very fine political biographies of of Jefferson uh, that often run to a, you know a thousand pages or more, and 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 so I'm letting those biographies handle all the political details, uh, but but without neglecting the the highlights of his political career, I'm really trying to look at his moral, ethical, and religious uh, beliefs and experiences, and then. Look at how the, that that system of ethics, incoherent as it often was, informed the way that he actually lived. And it's, it's no surprise that that if he has this fundamentally incoherent uh, ethical uh, system, uh, all these competing impulses, that it produced a, a relatively incoherent uh, way of living, where you see the man that says that he. Uh, it, it, you know, all, believes in the equality of all people. That then he you know, owns slaves and is so, so fundamentally devoted to it. Someone who is skeptical about Christianity and basic claims about Christianity is obsessed with the Bible. He can't he he can't stop working on Bible projects and reading the Bible constantly. Um, and so he he definitely considers himself a sort of Christian, even though he's skeptical about the most basic doctrines of Christianity. I think the closer you look, it would be a surprise if he was able to produce a, a fairly coherent life, given all the mishmash of things that he said he believed. Although you do show that on slavery, he knew it was regressive, he knew it was immoral, and yet still he acted in the way that he did. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the the but the financial chaos that he was living in. I mean, he he knew of people in Virginia who freed their slaves at great personal expense uh, and and great personal sacrifice. And and he knew even that you know Washington had made provision for the, the freedom of his slaves, uh, though only after he and his wife's uh, death. Um, but Jefferson could just never consider doing that uh, because of his financial situation, even if he was inclined to free his slaves. And by the end, the last seven years or so of his life, he was such in such fi- financial duress that really the creditors had taken control and there was no way that he could act positively against uh, slavery in his own life. You you mention uh, in the introduction my old friend Frank Cogliano's book about how Jefferson's reputation has has changed across generations. 
I, I was also struck, though, that uh, you talk about the friendship and correspondence that he had with Abigail Adams, the, the wife of, of President John Adams. And it, it is striking that she almost seems to be the one now, seen from our perspective, who was more farsighted and speaks to our age. She urged her husband to include women in the Constitution. She opposed slavery. She had a kind of independence and thought of action as a woman in a male society. He seems an essentially 18th century figure. Uh, she actually seems a more 21st century one. I think that's right. And and she is also, I think, the, the woman in the world. And, and of course, Jefferson's wife, Martha, had, had died in the 1780s. And, and uh, we, we think that that has some to do with Sally Hemings as sort of a, you know, a replacement for a wife type. Obviously, they could never get married because of their, their differences. And uh, in ethnicity and, and legal status, but but uh, Abigail Adams is is I think the one woman in the world that he seems to see as a kind of intellectual uh, equal, and and he, he she is not going to press him about issues like slavery as John Adams didn't press Jefferson about about slavery, but he uh, most women in his life seem to be he he just like many men of this time, he just doesn't sort of see as an intellectual entity at all. Uh, but Abigail does, and it, it really is striking, given the fact that she holds these very, for her time, progressive views on issues about women's rights and, and uh, slavery. So she she comes out looking, I think, very well in, in the context of Jefferson's time. There is also that uh, famous correspondence with uh, John Adams at, at the end of their, of their lives. And uh, again, it, it is striking that they lament that, that the spirit of the Declaration of Independence, which they'd both worked on, is in danger, that the Republic is threatened by populism, and that the whole project is basically uh, going to hell in a handcart. I mean, it, in many ways, it's a useful reminder to us, isn't it, that uh, talk about the, the end of the Republic or threats to the Constitution and, and so on. It, it's nothing new. It's been there right from the beginning of the, uh, the foundation of the state. Right. I mean, uh, most of the founding fathers uh, died in the 1790s and early 1800s through the 1820s, you know, deeply pessimistic about the American experiment. And I think that there's something natural psychologically socially about, you know, men getting old and, and, and complaining about what the next generation is doing. Um, and I also think that there's a certain political cachet to saying, if we don't do this or that, that the Republic will come to an end. Um, and there's something particular about Republican political philosophy, smaller Republican political philosophy of saying that liberty is constantly in danger and that, and that people can easily become corrupt and decadent and not up to the responsibilities of uh, Republican or Democratic political life. And, and so uh, he and, and Adams in the 18 teens, when they resume their correspondence, so thankfully, because it's, it's one of the most brilliant exchanges of letters in all of American history, um, they, they really are very pessimistic about the quality of the people at large and those who are participating in, in, in politics. 
and they're nostalgic for the founding generation. And in some ways, it, it's it's perfectly understandable that they would have those sorts of feelings. Yeah, I mean, they they both died on the 4th of July, 50th, uh, 50 years after the, the declaration, famously. I mean, it is interesting that, that their reputations uh, perhaps were not particularly high at the time. The 4th of July was not revered uh, in the way that it is um, now. Why, why, why has it become such an important date uh, in contemporary American life? Right. Well, John Adams thought that July 2nd should be the, the great American national He was always holiday. a contrarian. <laughs> right. And, and, and it makes sense. I mean, that's the day that the Continental Congress voted to declare independence. But, but July 4th is the day that the Declaration of Itself was, was adopted as their formal statement of, of independence. So I, I tend to think Adams has a good case there, and of course he, he didn't like Jefferson getting the, the attention for uh, you know the American independence. So uh, that that's partly self self motivated, but but uh, you know I think that it has some to do with uh, with Lincoln using uh, the Declaration and the Gettysburg Address and saying that you, you know the nation was founded on the proposition that all men are created equal. And then, uh, you know, increasingly over over time, that's that's used by people like Martin Luther King Jr., who said that that the Declaration is America's creed. Um, and, and so, it, it's people who have appropriated, or the, you know, the women's rights movement appropriated the Declaration, uh, the idea of equality by our common creation by God is is the basis of our equal human rights and so forth. That, that lots of people have appropriated the Declaration. Because it's 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 still the most powerful articulation of equal rights that the world has ever seen, and so I, I think that it has become increasingly appropriated and useful for Americans in our kind of national mythology, as it were, about what kind of nation that we are. And we all like to play the presidential rankings game. Um, where do, where do you think that Jefferson stands now as a president, and and how do you think he uh, that that recent presidents stand alongside Jefferson on the on the scales of history? Yeah, I mean, I think that Jefferson was enormously successful in his first term as president, uh, capped especially by the Louisiana Purchase, which was a deal that he he sort of fell into. But we can't—I mean, we can't blame him for that. He took the deal, uh, and and it was uh, easily, I think, the 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 best sort of diplomatic purchase that that we've made in national history, effectively doubling the size of the of the country in one fell swoop. Uh, for relatively little amount of money in in retrospect. So um, th th his second term was not successful, and that, that's often the case with two-term presidents. So, so I, I don't think we can be especially harsh on him. That some really extreme diplomatic and economic problems that came out right at the end of his second term uh, that, that Jefferson made much worse by some mistakes that he made in policy so I, I mean, I see him. If you can set aside his presidency alone, I, I, I think he he ranks pretty highly, uh, not not necessarily the, the absolute top tier presidents, but but a, a strong performance, especially in his in his first term, and you know more problematic second term. 
And and what about the broader conundrum of Jefferson's place in history as a person? I, I, I when I was reading the book, I was I was reminded of the 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 the, the political and philosophical writer George Steiner, right, talking about Wagner, who said that how can you have among the highest achievements of beauty, speculative elegance and audacity of the human mind on the one hand and the awfulness on the other? Um, it, it seems to me that with these kinds of figures, that Wagner, Jefferson and the like, I mean, they are, as, as we'd say in, 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 in a core exhibit A, in exactly that paradox. Right. I mean, I think the best thing to do with people like Jefferson, at least for starters, is just to sit with the contradictions and, and the, the awful things that he did in, alongside of the inspiring rhetoric. I mean, I, I think there's no question that he's one of the great writers of world political history um, and was able, in, in spite of his manifest you know, evil uh, ways of living and uh, with regard to, to slavery in particular, he was also able to articulate the, the, the greatest defense of human equality that the world has seen. Um, and and that's, there, there's a lot there that is characteristic of American national history of, of great ideals, you know, alongside uh, deep contradictions and ethical uh, problems, to say the least, in Jefferson's case. And so uh, I, I think the best thing to do is to just sit with that and not to to, to cancel, not to denounce, you know, right off the, the bat. Though I think that anyone reading my book will will see that I take a pretty dim view, ambivalent view at, at best of, of of Jefferson. But I, I think that, that the temptation to just instantly reject, denounce, cancel, dismiss is, is, is at a minimum it's it's not a very good historical impulse. I, I think sitting with the tension and contradiction and understanding how that has marked American history is, is, a, is a more uh, healthy uh, historical impulse. And, you know, somewhere in between the patriotic apologetics that just you know, won't countenance any kind of criticism. And then the, the other extreme being, you know, just denouncing altogether and saying, that, well, then we should just forget about him because of all the awful things that he did. So the book is Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. It's written by my guest, Thomas Kidd, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Thomas, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, wishing you a very happy holiday weekend. 